Welcome back to Get Psyched, brought to you by Psych Sign. I'm your host, Arizu. Today's episode brings you to the forefront of two critical aspects of the medical world. First, we're diving into the increasingly competitive world of psychiatry residency applications with our esteemed guest, Dr. Harold Levine, the program director for the Baycare Psychiatry Residency Program, in addition to serving as the chief medical officer at Baycare Behavioral Health in Tampa, Florida. With his extensive background managing six psychiatric hospitals, 10 outpatient clinics, and a team of 70 psychiatrists, Dr. Levine offers a rare glimpse into what it takes to stand out in this demanding field. But our conversation doesn't stop there. We will also tackle a subject that resonates with everyone across the entire spectrum of medicine, the mental health of residents and physicians. As a program director, Dr. Levine is intimately aware of the challenges and stresses that come with the territory of medical training and practice. In this episode, we're hoping to uncover how to stand out on residency applications with a deep dive into how these programs and the medical profession as a whole can better support the mental health of physicians at all levels of training. Dr. Levine's insights will shed light on the intricate balance between achieving professional success and maintaining mental health wellness in the high-stakes world of medicine. So stay tuned and get psyched to delve into this enriching and enlightening conversation with Dr. Harold Levine as we navigate the complexities of psychiatry residency competitiveness and mental health advocacy in the medical community. Thank you so much, Dr. Levine, for being here. We're very excited to have you on the Get Psyched podcast. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are very excited for this conversation we're about to have. I know I am. Um, we have plenty of questions for you today, and we can just go ahead and get started. So could you share a little bit about your journey to psychiatry and how your own personal philosophy shaped the vision and direction for now Baycare's psychiatry residency? Um. I think I was interested in psychiatry probably by the time I was a sophomore in college. Um, I also have an older brother, much, much smarter than myself, who went into psychiatry. So I'm sure that was a, a role model for me. Um, and then by the time I was in medical school, um, it, it really solidified. Uh, the didactic lectures were great. They brought in some new psychiatrists um, along the way. And um, at the end of my first year of medical school, I got to do some uh, clinical electives at an outside institution uh, that was nearby my medical school. I was in Kansas City. The institution was in Topeka, Kansas, the Menninger Foundation, which now actually exists as part of the Baylor medical system in Texas. And um, from that moment on, they had me. I was I was locked in. It was it was too impressive um, how smart these folks were and what they were offering to the community. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that um, 
being able to say, you point to your older brother and saying that you had that familial influence is so cool because I actually come from a family of engineers. And so I didn't have that influence. Um, but, you know, I still ended up right here, just interested in psychiatry for my own reasons. And so I always find it so fascinating to hear about the different reasons people go into it, whether it's an influence or whether it's a personal experience or um, something that just a moment in your life that kind of influenced you for the better. So how does your program view the role of research experience in an applicant's profile? I know that there are so many components of an applicant's profile that you guys look at, and it's um, typically residency programs will look at it through a holistic lens, so looking at each component. But if we were to kind of break it down now, going piece by piece, how would you view the role of research? You know, everybody brings research into the conversation. Everybody's vitae includes it. What's important to me personally when I'm interviewing someone and when I'm looking at their application is not necessarily the depth of the research as much as their depth of interest in what they were doing. It could be, it could be very minor, but if I have a resident applicant who really got into the whole concept, then it has meaning to me. And then I really want to hear what, what drove them to do that particular type of research, whether it was literature review or something else along the way, that's where it means something to me, their commitment and, and why they went down that road. Okay. So if I'm understanding correctly, it's more so the quality of their impact and experience on that research project rather than the quantity of publications or posters or presentations. Yeah. To be, to be honest, volume is not going to make the difference to me as much as a personal commitment that they have. And we all have those commitments along the way. That's what interests me when I'm looking at an applicant. Okay, that's great to hear. I think that's reassuring to a lot of people who, um, you know, psychiatry, I feel like doesn't necessarily always attract the most research-minded individuals. And I think that research is an integral component of psychiatry, for sure. That's how we move forward. But I think that you emphasizing the quality over quantity is reassuring because it, it allows people to really go into the areas of research that they're interested in. Um, or if they don't necessarily have an interest in research, that's reassuring for people that are dedicating their time in other ways to growing the field of psychiatry, whether that's through service or through academics. It necessarily doesn't have to fall into the research component, but hearing that, that that's, uh, that's how you weigh those things is really reassuring, I think. Similarly, I think that uh, other components of the of the application hold different amounts of value. How do you look at things like community service and volunteer experience? I'm going to go down the same road. If they're doing something to be able to do a checklist when it comes to filling out their vitae and showing, look, look at all these things I did. But if they have a story to tell me, and that's what I'm looking for. And during the interview process, I always want to hear the story. And that's part of the training, obviously not just as a program director, but as a psychiatrist. I want to hear the story that actually drove you to that particular type of work. Maybe it's something to do with their family. Maybe it's something to do with the school that they're at and a commitment that the institution itself has that drove them to a particular type of community service or volunteer work along the way. 
Gotcha. Are are some of these, I'm hearing exactly what you're saying, but are some of these things, let's say someone has opted not to do any research or any major research, no publications or something like that. Is that something that poses a red flag on their application or you kind of just look at their applic- other components of their application then and say, well, maybe they didn't have research, but maybe their skills and their gifts are better served somewhere else on their application. They're better referenced. Just, like- just, as, just as you're raising the question, in regards to uh, volunteer work in, the, in right. their communities, if that all of a sudden becomes one of the dominant focuses outside of their medical school education, then that's the conversation we're going to have. So, yeah, it really depends on where they come. But I would say the norm these days is everybody has some research that they've done, at least at least a limited amount, poster right. presentations at the at the minimum. Right. Uh, but yeah, the volunteer work probably interests me even more. Uh, that tells me usually a little bit more about the person. Yeah, that's very interesting. Yeah, interesting that you say that last part because research at times can feel more apersonal than a volunteer experience where most of the time people have a very intimate personal connection with why they're doing that volunteer work as opposed to research being more of a, a sterile, um, objective endeavor um, most, most of the time. That, yeah, that's, very, that's a very interesting uh, thing to bring up. We also wanted to ask about extracurricular activities, and I have a feeling you're going to kind of answer things the same way in terms of, you know, it just depends on what it is and your connection to that. But are there particular types of extracurriculars that maybe are more indicative of a successful psychiatry resident? Well, and to be very, very honest, sometimes the more unusual ones are the ones that actually get my attention right off the top. If from the beginning, I'm all of a sudden looking at the skydiver. Mm-hmm. All right. I've got to find <laughs> out about the skydiver. Or if they have an interest in uh, some movies from a certain generation of long mm-hmm. ago and far away, or just a particular type of focus of movies, the person who says, I, I, I focus on horror films, or mm-hmm. I focus on musicals from the, from the 40s. It's like, where is that coming from? There's always a great story to tell. And again, it tells me about an individual's passion. I want to know about that. Absolutely. I I think that that's becoming the theme in this conversation is you're very much interested in who that person is and what makes them them as opposed to the checkbox that, you know, most medical students think they have to hit all these things and then they're good uh, for residency. But um, I think it's it's very uh, refreshing to hear that you're more interested in who that person is and what they actually bring to the table and all those things. And I think skydiving would catch my interest as well. I think that's one of those things you don't see very often. Um, yeah, that, 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 that makes total sense. I mean, it's only human nature to, to want to learn more about some of the more unique attributes somebody has. Right. And, and, and then there's always the issues of countertransference and our response to people because it actually relates to something in our own personal lives. Right. I was a, I was a, camper for many, many years in overnight camps and eventually became a camp counselor. Oh, wow. (laughs) When I all of a sudden see something that is like, wow, I have that same background as Mm -hmm. you do. Tell me about yours. I really want to, I really want to hear what, what, what drove you in that direction at the end of the day. And that you can't count on because you have no idea what my background is when you're interviewing with me and I'm the, I'm the program director. But nonetheless, we're human beings. And as human beings, we can't help but also focus on things that we have in common. 
Absolutely. I appreciate that you take the time to kind of look for those commonalities and those similarities because we can't help being drawn to those those aspects about an individual, but also taking the time to look at those things that maybe you're not so familiar with and and taking the opportunity to learn more about that person and 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 in ways that they're different from you. I think that that's equally as important. Right. Because remember, there's already been a screening process. Here at Baycare, we get in the neighborhood of 700 applicants per year for Mm -hmm. six months. So it's like, so do we interview all 700? No, we do not. (laughs) We interview a large number. We interview over 100, between 120 and 130 per Mm -hmm. year. So already there's been a screening process along the way. And that has to do with academic performances, any unexplained absences, any concerns, red flags that come up in the conversations. There's a lot of screening that takes place. And you could raise the question, is that fair to screen out without even meeting that other 600 of the people that you've not met? And the answer may be, maybe, maybe not, but we have to have some way to be able to have a consistent way of looking at the applicants when they come in. So in that sense, yeah, we have the luxury by the time we screen out the other 600 people to get into a, a, a deeper level of understanding of who they are. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there there wouldn't be enough manpower to really even go through all 700 applications. And I think that um, definitely having a, while, while the application process is meant to be holistic, having some sort of screening process only makes sense. Um, so with that said, what unique qualities do you think stand out in applicants? Or what do you maybe even look for in an applicant uh, that 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 might indicate success at your program? And how can those qualities be best demonstrated on application. I'll talk a little bit about Baycare itself when I when I answer this question. It's a very unique organization, community-based, not-for-profit, and massive. Uh, consists of 12 hospital systems. Mm-hmm. Um, we have 28,000 employees. Baycare has never had their own residencies, literally up until two years ago. And a decision was made uh, by leadership along the way, we we have such a ripe arena to train people. Why would we not? We've taken residents from other programs in every specialty under the sun for decades and decades, but never had our own. So a lot of it has to do with what's the Baycare way of doing it? Well, when you're an organization like Baycare, they treat people right. There's no tolerance, absolutely zero tolerance for anything short of treating people with the utmost of respect. And that's not just patients, that's coworkers, that's everybody that's on our teams. So we're looking for people who they play by the rules on that. They treat people right. They don't just do it for show. When you read their recommendations, you're reading about how they treat everybody that they come in contact with. We want people who go out of their way to be liked and care about the other members. We look at our residents. You guys are part of a group. And you're going to be spending an awful lot of time with this group. I'm looking for the people who are interested in spending time with these people. And that doesn't mean they have to be best friends when they leave for the weekend or leave at night. But I'm looking for relationships with one another. They they need to support each other that way. So we look for people that that kind of abide by that type of uh, way to treat one another. Gotcha. So what I'm hearing is professionalism is of the utmost importance, of course, uh, but more so interpersonal communication skills, it sounds like being able to get along with whoever you may come into contact with and also taking that extra effort to really 
uh, present your best qualities and, and come across in a like, you know, not only a likable way, but in a very um, agreeable way. Yeah, absolutely. It's interpersonal skills. If you don't have that as a psychiatrist, you're not going to be as effective as other psychiatrists would be. Yeah, completely. It makes sense why how those skills would cross over into your professional life. And um, I agree they're they're essential. Um, and I think that it, it I am curious, though, how do you screen for that on an application before you actually get to speak with someone one on one? Because I can imagine some people appear a certain way on application on paper. And then once you meet them, maybe things are a little different. Two things I'm looking for. One is their personal story that one pager that really mm -hmm. tells the areas that they want you to know about. I'm not just looking for how smart. I mean, they're smart. We've already screened for smart. I'm not worried about that, but I am looking for the interpersonal. And likewise, on the letters of recommendation, I'm not just looking for, oh my goodness, this is the smartest medical student I've ever had. Everybody, every if, if, if you don't get reviews that say that, that you don't know how to pick the people who are doing your your recommendations. And if you do that, that is a problem I have to acknowledge. But I'm looking for them to be able to tell the personal stories of how they treated the patients, of how they how they included the staff in their discussions. And when a multidisciplinary treatment team meeting was taking place, they their, their mind was not wandering. They were focused laser sharp on what everybody was saying during that meeting. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so essentially looking more so at the personal statement, the evaluators and what their, you know, uh, impression of that student was, whether they were an active participant on rotations, whether they were respectful and um, how they treated others around them. Sounds like those are the main the main things you're looking for. How do all of these things that we've discussed, aside from the other ones like traditional uh, metrics like test scores and grades, how do those complement those traditional metrics? How do you, and how do you look at those traditional metrics? For instance, when you have a DO versus MD applicant, and while most of us in healthcare acknowledge that these degrees essentially are equivalent to one another, we have two separate licensing bodies and separate exams we take. So how do you treat those kinds of metrics and how do they complement these other things we've discussed? You know, I think you're right. I think the, the degrees are equivalent. And I don't, I don't interview someone who's coming from an allopathic school and say they're going to be one way. And I'm going to see someone from an osteopathic school and say they're going to be some, somehow different. Everybody's smart. Everybody's well-trained. But the individuals themselves, um, I don't see a difference. And as a result, we also we, we, we don't look at in our system of, of setting up for the match and doing our rank order. We're not looking how many of these are DOs, how many of these are MDs. The last two years, I think we ranked in the neighborhood of 75 in our rank order. We drew all of our uh, first and second year residents from our top 30. And if you go back and look at the distribution of where did they come from, um, both years, it was interesting. It was probably um, Two-thirds of our top 30 were allopathic, one-third were osteopathic, probably in keeping just with the volume of exactly. MD medical schools and DO medical schools. That's just right. where the numbers actually come out. We weren't trying to put it together that way. That's just how the people came out. So, um, so as an applicant, is every institution going to take it that way? You should do your homework. You should take a look. Have, has the institution had a history? of taking DOs in the past, whether it's in that particular residency or others. 
could there be a, and bias is not even the word I'm looking for, but could there be a, a predilection for one versus the other? It's possible, even if it's a subconscious type of focus along the way. But you should look at the history. If you look and it's like, interesting, this program doesn't seem to ever have any DOs on it. Um, does that have meaning? And be it conscious or otherwise, yeah, it might have meaning. So you need to do your homework on that. Absolutely. I think that, um, I mean, it's refreshing to see a program that, you know, doesn't necessarily um, sway one way or the other, because uh, that that ensures a bit more of a level of playing field, I would say, across MDs and DOs, because as we know, stigma still exists across the specialties and across different residencies. And so that's reassuring to hear. Um, and, and I agree with that latter part of just doing your research, because I can't say how many times I've looked at a program and um, not seen a single DO in their roster for several years, looking several years back as well. And so I think that's something to definitely consider when applying, um, not to completely sway anyone, but look at the faculty as well. Not right. just looking at who did they choose as residents or who did they land as residents. Interestingly enough, I didn't land a single DO in our first year class. Okay. And yet a third of my top 30 were DOs. It just so happened that we didn't get any DOs, whereas the previous year we did. I, I think you, you can't predict, will my class have a certain number or a certain percent true. of DO versus MD? But if you, you should look back as a program director, I do. It should really be in keeping with the volume because you're right. We are training equally trained folks along the way, perhaps a little bit different focuses along the way, but in general, right. the training's equivalent. Right. Completely agree. Um, and it's important to mention looking at the faculty as well, that can kind of signal to an applicant um, how receptive they are to the different backgrounds, I suppose. Um as far as mentorship goes in psychiatry, I know that my experience has been shaped by my mentors so far in my medical career. Uh, how should applicants go about finding and engaging with mentors in the field? And how important is mentorship in psychiatry? Almost all important. Almost all important. You know, we have our lab, we have our films, but let's not pretend that we are internal medicine. We are not, <laughs> we are never going to be, and that's not the purpose of it. We have TMS, we have ECT, you know, that is true. We have uh, as ketamine administration, we have all those things. But at the end of the day, we are psychiatrists who are having a very, very personal interaction with human beings. So the different mentors along the way, they're going to give you a very broad approach to how you're going to collect the information when doing a psychiatric evaluation, a mental status examination, a differential diagnosis, and they're not all done the same way. The way that they'll interact, the way that they'll open a conversation first time meeting a patient, it's so nice to have a different experience with multiple mentors along the way. You will find those, those approaches that seem to fit your personality a little bit more. It's a little bit easier for you to say, I think I could do it that way more than the way this other person perhaps approach their patients as they're starting the mental status and psychiatric evaluation. But you want as many different experiences on that as you can get. When I interview, I would say the typical number that I see is three. I'm not sure why it comes up that way, but it seems that most of our applicants have about three different mentors, always one that they favored because that's the mm -hmm. way life goes. But there's typically three along the way. And that just means they listen to the other two, they watch the other two, but they really 
we're drawn towards that third one that that they talk about even more during the interview. So I'd say if you can get those three, if you can get four, if you can get five, you will find yourself learning from each of those. And again, it's style and the way you go about collecting your information. Definitely. I can, I mean, I'm just speaking from my own personal experience, the mentors I've had in psychiatry specifically, they are all very different. And so I value what each and every one of them has to offer because I feel like every time I talk to one of them, I learn something different. And maybe this is unique to psychiatry, I'm not sure, but everyone tends to develop their own style of how they want to interview and how they want to go about approaching a patient um, because that interview and approach is so integral to psychiatry, maybe more than other specialties like medicine where you rely more on labs or things like that. Um, most, of our, most of our data comes from what we're able to extract from the patient ourselves and, and that interaction we have one-on-one. And so I think that, like you said, learning from all these different people is going to serve you because you get to learn what you like, what you don't like. And then once you get to residency, I imagine you develop, you kind of take bits and pieces and develop your own sort of personal style. Um, but I couldn't I will, agree more I will with also that. Add, I will also add, your mentors don't all have to be psychiatrists. My absolute favorite mentor when I was in medical school was a general surgeon. I had never met a kinder man who always had the time for his patients. And here's the thing I always remember. You're on all these services, whether it's orthopedics, whether it's medicine, whether it's general surgery. He was the only one who pulled up a chair in every room that we went into. He didn't stand there while the patient was in the bed. He Mm -hmm. literally, he didn't care if there was all sorts of things on that chair. He'd remove all those things from the chair and sit in that chair as if he had all the time in the world. What a message you give a patient when you do that. It's like, wow, they're not just rushing to get rounds done or anything else. Clearly, this person is going to listen to everything I have to say. So I'd say, was he one of my mentors? You bet he was. And he was the (laughs) furthest thing from a psychiatrist that, that I ever saw, but he was a great mentor on how you deal with people. Yeah, that's that's really important to note as well. Like, don't pigeonhole yourself and limit yourself in, in the type of mentor you can have. Like you said, you can learn some really, really valuable lessons just from taking stock and taking value in what all physicians have to offer to you. And that's, I think that's a really important thing to remind ourselves of um, and remind myself of as well. I think that um, I've, I was telling you earlier that I, I came into medical school wanting to do psychiatry, but I tried very hard to check myself along the way and make sure I wasn't pigeonholing myself because I didn't want to become too narrowly focused on one thing. Even though I had that gut feeling I wanted to do this, I wanted to keep my perspective open and broad um, and learn from all my all the physicians I was going to be working with. And I, I think that's very, very valuable. And I couldn't agree more with that. Um, as far as the students that are gearing up to apply for psychiatry residencies in this upcoming cycle, what advice do you have to offer to them? Are there certain pitfalls that they should absolutely avoid? Um, Do you have any things that you can recommend for them? I'll tell you a little story that happened, I don't know, two weeks ago. And here's the story. We were set up to do an interview, all right? And the interviewee, uh, had got a flat tire and called the um, program manager and said, oh my God, I have a flat tire. Is there any way 
I can reschedule this because I'm in my car, I'm waiting for AAA to arrive. And she was great. And she said, sure, we'll, we'll set it up. In my mind, I had the following thought. If I were in that person's shoes and I had a flat tire, I would not ask them to reschedule. I would say, I am in my car. I am not missing this interview for anything. Are you okay that you're going to see cars whizzing by me? If the road noise is too bad, please tell me. Try to adjust. And it's a little thing. And by the way, the person didn't do a single thing wrong. But I get a message from that of the person who says, are you okay with doing it that way? Those are the little things that when you say, are there pitfalls you need to watch? That person, they had no idea they were going to have a flat. They were very responsible. And that person might be a great, great applicant for us that we'd be happy to choose. But it's a little thing that you just need to think of those little things and how it's perceived by others along the way. Not that that person did anything wrong, but it could have even been better. Right. No, I I, I completely get where you're coming from. It almost um, leaves a bad taste in the mouth to to do something like that. Not that it's wrong by any definition of the of the word, but that it doesn't show that you went that above and beyond, maybe, that you were that committed that regardless of these aren't ideal circumstances, my I have a flat on the side of the road. I mean, even when you were telling that story, I'm like, maybe you can call an Uber, like leave the car there. Nothing's gonna happen to it. Call an Uber and get to the interview. Like there are ways around these. Um obviously there are circumstances that are unavoidable. Um and, and that individual's that individual's focus might have been more, I just want to give my best presentation to Absolutely. Dr. Levine. I just want Dr. Levine to see me at my best. And right. if they see me frazzled, maybe mm-hmm. he'll look at that differently. And it's mm-hmm. like, actually, if you're frazzled and you're working your tail off to do a great job, how can I argue with that as a presentation? Yeah, no, it's so interesting to hear that that perspective because um, you, one could argue either side that I should present my best self and I shouldn't you know, try to force this interview right now and the circumstances aren't ideal. And then one could argue the other side. Well, the fact that you made the, you went through the efforts to make it to this interview regardless. And even if you are a bit disheveled and a bit, you know, on edge and um, all of that, that you made the effort counts for more. So I think it's really valuable to hear how you perceive those things. Um, But immediately the thought was, I'm calling an Uber. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, no. You, you, you kind of went down the same road. I, you know, during, during interviews, a lot of these interviews, I'd say the majority are done in the applicant's home. So what mm-hmm. does that mean? There could be a roommate there. Somebody yeah. has a child there. Uh, pets. Oh, my goodness. All of a sudden, the cat is walking across the, the picture. And I watch how they how they respond to that. How are they handling yeah. it? Because nobody expected it. It's like, did they, did they all of a sudden lose their temper for a minute? Or were sure. they still about the whole thing and even just grab the grab the animal in their hand and keep the conversation going if the animal is just bothering them along the way? It's fascinating to watch how people react. Yeah. And I think that begs the question of it really these real life situations um, give you a bit more information to work with as well, because it shows you how the applicant deals with sudden changes in a schedule or stressors that may come about on a service. Um, so I think it can, it even translates to the kind of, um, 
resident they might be in your program. And um, it's really interesting to see how you take all this information and kind of utilize it in formulating what this resident could look like for you. Um, but uh, what advice do you, with that said, I mean, what advice do you have for students if, if this makes a student a little nervous, like feeling like I'm going to be hyper analyzed, they're going to be watching my every move, I have to be perfect, I have to be this. How do you respond to that? Never, never looking for perfection. It's, it's mm -hmm. interesting. And you're right. We all want to present the very, very best part of ourselves. You know, we, we, we recognize there, there is no perfection. And again, if you think of what we're looking for and what we've already screened for, we already screened people who are really struggling on a lot of different levels academically, mm -hmm. perhaps. And, and in, in our group, we're comfortable. They're all smart. Now it's just a matter of how do they, how do they deal with it? How are they going to react? So I'd say, be yourself. And if possible, know that you've already passed a significant bar by the time the interview process has started. Think about it. And by the way, we're not the only program that has a, right now, psychiatry is so popular that I would say most of the programs have huge number of applicants compared to how many that they interview. You've already made it to the interview process. The whole idea of I have to prove perfection. We, we look at all hundred that we're talking to us. These guys are great. Every one yeah. of them is great. Now I just want to, I just want to learn more about them as people gotcha. so I can pick the finalists that I really would love to have in our program. That's where you need to you need to get comfortable with the idea. You've already passed huge tests by the time the interview comes. Right. So feeling taking comfort in the fact that they already like you. They just want to get to know you for who you are now. You're not necessarily proving yourself. You are just letting them get to know you. It's very rare. And I would say and I when I say that, I'm saying less than five percent of our applicants come across as fake in any mm -hmm. way, which is good. I mean, I want yeah. that. It's probably not even anywhere near 5%. It's it's almost unusual when it happens. It's like, mm, that one just didn't feel so real, so sincere right. along the way. It, and they certainly did a very, very good job. It was a little more perhaps fake than most of the other applicants. So I'd say of our applicants, they're pretty good about letting some of that stuff go and just... Um, showing us who they are. So I would yeah. say you're, you're asking the question to try to help folks who are going through the process yes. right now. Most of them, they're pretty smart. They've, they've figured out he wants to see the real me. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, even for the, the applicants gearing up, and I guess that includes myself, what, what, what should we focus on? And I guess, you know, putting your best foot forward at all times is obviously important, but once you get to that interview portion of the evaluation, um, not letting your guard down a little bit and allowing them to see you for who you are while maintaining all of those things that we, you know, are still number one. So I'll give you a, a, a little hint along the way about one other thing that program directors and program managers look for. There's a group of applicants on any given day, whatever that number is, four, eight, more or less. You're spending time with several interviewers. For the most part, I think most of the programs do it one-on-one. -on -one. Some actually will have three interviewers talking to one applicant at a time. Most don't, don't work that way. But there's downtime often in between interview one, two, and three during that several-hour block that's there. In that downtime, you're going to be in a waiting room. When you're in that waiting room, I'm not seeing you 
it's interesting how the person might react to the other people that are in the waiting room. They might ask the program manager questions. They might just be looking at their phone the whole time. And it would be interesting to just kind of keep in mind during that, during that interview, it's not just the three interviews that you might be having. There's also the time you're in the waiting room as well. Keep it in mind. <laughs> a little, little, little tip. <laughs> no, that's appreciated. It's um, being on your, your best behavior at all times. I think that um, keeping that in mind too, making that, making that a, 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 a habit for yourself is really important because I'm sure there are times when you're in the hospital and around patients where maybe you're, you stepped out of the patient room and you're discussing a patient and it's still important to remember, even if you're not in the room with the patient, you still uphold that level of respect. You still uphold that, um, you protect their privacy and confidentiality at all times. So no matter where the setting is. And so I think it, it almost parallels those skills that you're going to need as a resident to constantly be, have that self-awareness to check yourself and make sure you're not overstepping boundaries or not using your time wisely. Like if you were waiting for between interviews, maybe, maybe you take that opportunity to ask the program manager some questions or speak with the other applicants or whatever the case is, but maybe you don't just jump to TikTok and spend 20 minutes on TikTok while you're exactly. waiting. <laughs> exactly. Because, because again, our program manager, she happens to be amazing, but I would assume again, around the country, I would assume most program directors want to hear from the program manager. Yeah. How 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 was the interaction with you? Anything come up that I should be aware of or anything like Absolutely. that? Absolutely. We want to know. Absolutely. Now, this has all been very, very helpful. I think for um, all of our listeners out there, I think can gleam something from this interview. Um, no matter where you are at your medical school journey, I think it's always, always important to think about um, where you're heading and, and what you can do to prepare for those next steps. I know it's been helpful for me, so I really appreciate it. Um, I do want to switch gears now and start talking about some of the other things um, that we had in store. Earlier this year, you co-wrote an article with one of our very own producers, Alex Scher, shout out, about improving resident and physician mental health. Given the concerning stats about depression, suicidal ideation amongst residents, how do you think that residency programs can better support their mental health? And specific to Baker, how do you think you guys support your residents' mental well-being? You know, um, we focus on it a lot. We think about it a lot. We try to do several things along the way. We try to make the atmosphere itself one that is not a high pressure type of focus. Our goal, when it's kind of like medical school, you know, probably a little bit different, but you don't select someone to come to medical school with the idea of weaning out only a certain percent of those people. The expectation, everybody's going to graduate. Now, the reality mm -hmm. is it doesn't always work that way. Medical school is an incredibly high pressure. Uh, type of set of circumstances that most of us have no idea, especially during the first two, maybe three years of medical school, just mm -hmm. how intense um, it's like to be a to be a medical student. In a residency, we look at it a little bit differently. We we want our residents to be extremely comfortable along the way, and that's everything from their working conditions to the number of hours that they're going to work in any given week. Residency directors and managers, we have guidelines that ACGME puts out. These are the maximum number of hours that you're going to be able to, to have expectations of, of working. 
we try to come under that significantly. Our, our residents do a lot of reading on their own as it is. We try to get them to limit that to some degree. Okay to have fun. We want to know when we see them, we're, we're all together every Thursday for didactic. I want to know what's going on in their lives. What, 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 what parts of Tampa Bay have you been to this past week? Did you go out mm-hmm. to eat somewhere? Did you go to the beach? Did you do any mm-hmm. of those things? We don't ask the question just to find out when we're nosy. We want mm-hmm. to actually do things like that along the way. So number one, it is a residency and you're going to be learning a boatload. Mm-hmm. I think psychiatry really has it right. We're a specialty that is a four-year residency program. If they tried to cram it all into three, maybe we'd, we'd handle things differently. It's like, <laughs> there's no free time. You really have to do it. I think four years is a great amount of time that allows a psychiatry residency program to take their time with the residents. They don't have to book it so that they're putting in 12-hour days. Um, we also, in our first year, do not have night call. We are real strong wow. about that. We're not, we're not comfortable as they're moving into this whole next part of their life that they mm-hmm. have to do that in their first year. Now, in their second year, mm-hmm. they do have nightfall. You know, is it is it pressure? You bet it is. But at least we want them to get situated before that even happens. So play it a little bit different along the way. Now, then go to the resident who's saying, even with all of that, all that you're trying to do to take care of and encourage, they're still struggling. We have EAP services that don't even cost anything for them up to, I think it's between eight and 10 sessions. We mm-hmm. have therapists available at any given time. So we strongly encourage everyone, hey, even if you're not feeling any stress right now, you want to use your EAP services, you don't have to have a chief complaint to be able to avail yourself. You can just go to EAP, start talking about what you're thinking about, what you might be hoping to accomplish over the course of the next year, whatever it might be along the way. So we look at it as an environment, but we also look at it as an opportunity. If you need help, any extra help, then we can provide that for you. Absolutely. I think it sounds like BayCare has set a standard for other residency programs in terms of what should be available to their residents and how to prioritize the mental well-being of residents. And, and like you said, I mean, everyone comes with a different background. Everyone comes with a different level of resiliency and 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 comes to to the program with different skills. But but being proactive and making sure that the structure of your program uh, enables residents to be successful in that program and not trying to weed anyone out. Because at that point, you know they're making an investment in you. You're making an investment in them. You're not purposefully trying to weed anyone out of the program. Um, you're simply trying to create resilient competent physicians at the end of the day. So I think that that's, that's admirable that that becomes a pillar of your program is making sure to take care of the mental well-being of your residents. um, And you see them as yours to take care of. I think that's important Um, because it it make it, it doesn't make sense, right? Like physicians can't continue to provide care to their patients if if they themselves are unable to take care of themselves. Uh, to me, that seems like common sense, but it seems like somewhere along the way, we've lost sight of that almost. Yeah, you know, the, 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 air, the airlines always always taught us um, how you take care of yourself and the people around you, because they always say, in the event that we run into turbulence and you're with a small child or someone who needs your assistance, please put your own seatbelt on first then help the person sitting next to you. And then you ask yourself the question, well, if I'm really looking after someone else the way a physician would, wouldn't you take care of 
And it's like, really? Because if you don't put <laughs> your seatbelt on first, you're not going to be able to help that person who really cannot take care of themselves. So you better right. be taking care of yourselves along the way. Absolutely. I think it's one of the most fundamental things, but we don't always remember. We forget it very easily when we get lost in, um, we have to meet this requirement, this requirement, we're, you know, X, Y, Z. I think it's easy to forget. Um, even as medical students, we're in the process of learning um, how to become physicians. And yet, sometimes we forget to take care of ourselves. And I think it's it's important at every step of the way to have check-in with yourself. And you know, um, another thing I would add to it, I think the, the the physicians who are just saying, I will work myself to death, I deserve it, I want the opportunity to, I worry about burnout. I truly yeah. worry about burnout. You know, it's great to, I, I want everyone to love the kind of medicine mm-hmm. that they're practicing, um, mm-hmm. because if you don't, that too will cause burnout. But you don't have to put in 100 hours a week along the way. ACGME has it right. They've put in yeah. strict limitations on that. It's like they realize it's not going to go well in the long run for the individual, for the patients that they're taking care of. So um, take care of yourself first year. Absolutely. Are there ways that you and um, managers in your program are able to recognize early signs of mental health strain and burnout and those things? And what kind of steps do you take to help those residents? Yeah, you know, when we start to have a perception that it's just not going the way they want, and, you know, every single rotation that you're doing during residency, you're evaluated. And the evaluation mm-hmm. talks about your skill sets. It talks about how it, it talks about literally how you are interfacing with every member of the team and the patients along the way. And when you start to hear anything along the way that suggests there's there's a level of either they're uptight, there's an irritability, there's mm-hmm. a, a lack of interest. Any of those things are early warning signs that might mean nothing, but they also might mean something. So at the end of every rotation, we have conversations with our residents to just find mm-hmm. out, give me your, your impression of it. And we also give them feedback. We, we will read to them exactly what is being said along the way. We don't hold back. We want them to hear. And it's funny because if a resident hears anything that says in any way, they weren't just perfect with every aspect. (laughs) It's like, well, but I I want you to think I'm perfect. And it's like, Mm -hmm. I try to reinforce, I want to think that you're a great person, but you're not a perfect, great person. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, me- <laughs> medicine tends to attract the perfectionist type, unfortunately. <laughs> you know, it's it's breaking those habits too. It's forming better, healthier habits, but it's also unlearning some of the habits you've learned growing up um, to expect perfection out of yourself. You're never going to be perfect. And, and I think that um, having those conversations and not holding back with your residents is extremely valuable because it builds that expectation of, we don't want you to be perfect. We want you to get better. And that's what we're looking for. Um, I know you've spoken highly of the ACGME, the the, the limit you have uh, 80 hours a week for residents is, is my understanding, um, is the official limit. And you mentioned Baycare, you tend to, uh, your residents. Don't lie on that. Yeah, a little bit lower than that. Um, in your opinion, are there other critical steps that need to be taken at the institutional and national levels to protect residents um, and improve the mental health landscape for physicians? You know, as a new program, um, you, you realize from the beginning, as you, you're planning for about a year and a half before you see your first resident, you're planning every aspect of it, the didactic, the clinical, mm-hmm. the faculty, 
But you realize within the first week, all your brilliance, all that hard work, residents will look at it and all of a sudden they're going to have a take on it that's very different than <laughs> everything you thought about and you put all this effort into. Because we're new, it's very easy for us to say, I want feedback. Please give me feedback. And we listen to our residents now. Easy for me to say as, as a newer program, we've only mm -hmm. had residents now for two years. Easy for me to say, oh, we take feedback all the time. Any new program is going to do that. I mean, it would be shocking if a program didn't or wouldn't. What yeah. happens to a program that's a really well-established established program with a really good reputation along the way? It would be easy after a long while to say, look, we turn out a great product of residence. We've been doing this for a long time. I hope that we, when we reach that point, will continue to take the feedback the way we do now, because I know our I know our residents appreciate the daylights out of it. And I think going forward, even if this is 10, 15, 20 years down the pipe, I think those residents will appreciate it. So not just at the end of a rotation, write down your thoughts. I mean, have the real conversations. Take an hour while you're eating lunch with, with the program director and mm -hmm. the residents. Just let it out. Whatever it is, it's, it's for the best. It, it, it pays. So I'd say, first and foremost, um, I hope we do that when we when we. No, I think that's so important that you emphasize not only taking the steps to collect feedback on a form or a survey, but actually fostering a culture of transparency. And we actually care about your feedback, not that we just do it because we have to collect feedback on a form and show that we collected feedback, but we are actually interested in the day-to-day -day thoughts and, and ways we can improve. I think that's well, We do have one rule on that. Our rule uh -huh. is, if the feedback is negative, give me a better solution. Right. I, 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 it's Someone not going to help. I might not be able to come up with the right answer. You know what it feels like to experience something that you believe could be mm -hmm. better. Tell me what we've done wrong and then give me at least one option of what sure. we could do better. And the reality is they're great at that. They, they, <laughs> they always come up with the options and we, and we actually put them into play. I mean, That's there's awesome. not one way to get there. So we're more yeah. than happy. That's awesome. Um, as we start to wrap up this conversation, I want to look towards the future and ask you, Dr. Levine, how do you envision the training of psychiatrists to evolve over the next several years, especially in light of recent advancements in mental health care, some of the more exciting things on the horizon? What do you see in the future of psychiatry? Here's what I hope I will see in the future of psychiatry, and I'll put it in two, two major buckets. One, don't don't get overly excited about the technology that is coming to psychiatry. It is exciting. I mean, what can you say about how far it's come and what can be done? But at the same time, remember, there's not a pill, there's not a test for every patient that comes to you. As a matter of fact, how many patients that come to you do you say to yourself, they do not need medication? Here's the type of psychotherapy or group therapy or individual that they need at this time along the way. Make mm -hmm. sure that your diagnoses are not always looking for the diagnosis that will have a medication associated with it. Mm -hmm. And I hope psychiatry keeps that balance in play. Obviously, when psychiatry first got started, there were not medications. And when there were medications, there were very few. And the medications we had had incredible side effects that made it really, really difficult to maintain adherence on medication. I get that. 
But at the same time, don't forget some of the roots of what psychiatry is about along the way. And I'd say the second thing that I'm hoping that psychiatry continues to do is have continuums of care in even the smallest of communities. It's not just always, it's going to be individual therapy, it's going to be psychotropic medications, or it's going to be hospitalization. There's so many other types of programs for the consistently um, uh, mentally ill uh, with with fact teams, um, with housing for uh, so many of our residents that don't have them along the way. Make mm-hmm. sure that we're providing that type of continuity of care along the way. Um, studies have been done in multiple major metropolitan areas of just dealing with a housing crisis for the profoundly, consistently mentally ill, having the housing for them. Forget the medication for just a minute. Having the housing for them makes such a different outcome for those patients. So my hope is that we maintain those types of um, uh, various types of care that is provided, not just the medications along the way. Absolutely. I think even just the way I phrase that question, looking to the future, you can't forget what has worked and what continues to work um, in spite of all the very exciting technologies and therapies that are on the horizon. I think that's uh, well said, well said. Um, And finally, Dr. Levine, for our listeners who are considering psychiatry, but still a bit uncertain, what final thoughts or words of encouragement would you like to offer them? All right. (laughs) It's a great question. And here's where I go with Talk to your primary care physician, talk to your internist, talk to your surgeon, talk to the pediatrician and ask them how much of what they do in their practice every day is mental health. And you will hear from every single one of them. There's a few specialties, maybe a little less, but you will hear from every single one of them. A huge percent of what they do every day is behavioral health. It is mental health. It is psychiatric care that is being provided. It's a great field to go into, and you don't have to just say, well, it'll be part of what I do. You can do this. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to leave our listeners on. Thank you so much for being here, Dr. Levine, and taking the time to really dive deep into the psychiatry residency application and equally so talking about what we can do to support resident mental health. Such an important, important conversation we had. Thank you again. Thank you.